Welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Mowder, and this week I'm going to be talking to Richard Beauchamp. So, hailing from the rolling verdant hills of the Missouri Ozarks, Richard Beauchamp is an author of both horror and dark speculative fiction. You can find his fiction published in various magazines and anthologies, including Cohesion Press's Snafu series, Dark Peninsula Press's Negative Space Survival Horror Anthologies, and the other stories from Hawk and Cleaver Audio. His story, Sons of Luna, was a finalist for the 2018 Pushcart Prize, and his debut fiction collection, Black Tongue and Other Anomalies, from DNT Publishing, was a nominee for the 2022 Splatterpunk Awards for Best Fiction Collection. His novella, The Gnashing, will be out from Campfire Publishing in the summer of 2023. So Richard and I talked about his short fiction, we talked about his novella Autonomous, which came out in January of this year, and we do talk about the Negative Space anthologies from Dark Peninsula Press, because we're both in those. Negative Space 2, A Return to Survival Horror, is available as of yesterday, so definitely go ahead and check that out. I'm here today with author Richard Beauchamp. Is that how you pronounce it, Beauchamp? Yep, you got it right. Okay. (laughs) I'm, uh... Uh, being in uh, New Mexico, I'm not confronted with French pronunciations very often, <laughs> so it was kind of right. a little bit of guesswork there. Well, I want to kind of get into sort of your history and kind of how you found your way into being a horror writer, but first, I just have to mention, so not long ago, I interviewed Holly Ray Garcia, and I realized that she had a story in the very first anthology that I had published in, and then looking through your stuff, um, I realized you had a story in the second anthology i ever published in and i had somehow missed that it was in the um the solitude anthology from uh is it dead but not dead publishing i think yeah uh yeah dbnd yeah yeah i didn't realize you were in that one yeah (laughs) well that was so early like i didn't know who anybody was yeah same and i had actually read your story but i just hadn't put it together i reread it today and i kind of want to talk about that one real quick so i know i'm going to butcher the pronunciation of the title but it's the uh the shiwae i think yeah yeah. which i mean it's kind of a made-up word so there's no real right or wrong way to pronounce right (laughs) okay well that was one thing i wanted to ask you because what really struck me about that story like i said i'm in new mexico i'm very kind of familiar with kind of some of the mythology you were getting at in that story so just real quick setup of what the story is about it's um a long-haul trucker he's kind of rebuilding his life after having essentially killed a family in like a drunk driving accident um and then now he's got this new job he's out of prison he's got this new job as a trucker and he takes an assignment essentially driving through a part of the navajo nation that he's kind of warned to stay away from and then while on this drive he kind of encounters some sort of entity that uh well i guess i'll just leave it there i don't want to spoil it (laughs) Right. But the thing that struck me about that story is like, I've heard, you know, growing up in New Mexico, I've heard stories like that all my life. So I was really curious kind of where that one came from. And, and if you had actually also kind of encountered, because you're in Missouri, right? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, you know, because I have New Mexico, like I've been to California and some of the Pacific Northwest, but I've always flown over New Mexico. Mm-hmm. I've never actually been there. But, um, you know, there's just so much rich Native American lore all mm-hmm. throughout that area and i was almost conflicted when i started writing it because you know i'm a white dude who am i to mm-hmm. you know try to use some kind of lore but i started reading like owl going back mm. and some of stephen grand jones's stuff and right. like some of that some of those gods from that mythology are 
terrifying, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I just thought, you know, a lot of the reservations out there, they, they still have really strong beliefs about some yeah. of that stuff. I thought, you know, it'd be some guy who's just going through a personal struggle, you know, in the process of rebuilding his life is sort of like a repentance, you know, one of those spirits decides to visit him, you know, because mm-hmm. he was blackout drunk when the accident happened. And so right. like, not to give too much of a spoiler, but the the entity he encounters, the the Kiwaya or Shiwaya, however you want to say it, kind of forces him to relive that. And uh Mm. Well, it was like some of the specific imagery. So, and in fact, I think uh, when I was uh, in my first interview for the podcast, and I was talking to Douglas Ford, Mm -hmm. um, we were kind of talking about, you know, he's from Florida, I'm from New Mexico, and kind of how the land that we grew up around that we live in kind of influences our writing. And one thing I did mention to him is that there's parts of this state, parts of New Mexico, and in particular, up in what's called the Four Corners area, which is essentially like either part of the Navajo Nation or right near the Navajo Nation nation where when you drive through it it really does feel like there's something unreal to it and i have heard story you know one image you have in the cya is the trucker sees this thing out the window and it's essentially running and keeping pace Mm -hmm. with his semi-truck i have heard several people tell me almost that exact same story um, but not as like a like you know a story but like something that an they encounter see, an encounter going through that area you know, this is this is the part of the the country where like skinwalker lore is very like you said there there's still uh some strong belief in some of that lore and i have definitely heard stories of people you know driving through the desert at night up around Shiprock or farmington and they see someone by the side of the road who just starts running alongside their car and then is like keeping pace with the car and then suddenly is running on all fours and i think i've heard three different people tell me that story (laughs) did you in your research for this did you encounter any kind of stories like that yeah no i uh literally i was looking for like native american um language like i know the navajo is a big one out there because i didn't Mm want to like really appropriate the culture so i was making sure right you know what i was talking about was at least somewhat accurate and i'd heard Mm -hmm. a lot of people saying that um i can't remember the word for it but there's places or like it's a veil between worlds you know like Mm -hmm. it's a very thin veil between this world and the spirit world and Mm -hmm. Yeah, people are talking about, um, oh, not Wendigos, but there's another uh, entity that, um, you know, preys on the, the corruption of your soul. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I've heard of that, like people coming across in the desert, you know, and they're being stalked by something. Right. And uh, I've heard once or twice the whole uh, driving along, you know, and seeing something. I just think that's just so terrifying. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're driving and you're seeing something that's keeping pace with you. That's like an animal or something. I can't think of anything more terrifying, especially if you're, I know there's sections I can't remember if it was in Arizona or New Mexico where like they literally have signs warning you to fill up for gas because you're mm-hmm. not going to see anything for hundreds of miles. Yeah. In, yeah. You yeah. see that. And, and particularly that region of the state, I'm not sure if it's the least populated part of New Mexico. You know, the most, most of the population in New Mexico kind of runs down the center of the state, kind of down I-25 mm-hmm. um, and then somewhat along I-40, which goes out towards Arizona and Gallup and everything. But as you get up in that corner, it really is like sparse population. And they do have those signs. And I've driven through that area quite a bit. And there are areas that you go through where it's like, you know, if you break down, you're you're probably in trouble. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because not only are there no services, but I mean, there's no traffic. There's like no one, like it could be an hour before another car comes along, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and if it's at night, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that just sounds terrifying. I think I'll stick to, to flying over New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, it's an interesting state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Roswell and everything else. So. so you've never actually been to New Mexico, you're saying? No, nope, no. That's uh, one of the few uh, states I haven't been to. That's interesting because, I, I mean, I really felt like you kind of captured the feel. Quite, well, good. Quite I was wondering, you being a native, you're like, wow, this isn't right at all. But yeah, no, I mean, even the way you described him uh, driving through Albuquerque, where it's just this kind of interruption in the drive of just a bunch of like concrete glass, and then you're mm-hmm. back in the desert. And it's like, right. that's what it is. It's like you're, you know, you're driving through eastern New Mexico, there's nothing, and there's nothing, and there's nothing. And then you kind of see the Sandia Mountains rising in front of you, and all of a sudden there's a city there. Right. And then once you're through the city, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing, and there's nothing for another well, 200 miles. Google Earth helped a lot with that. Yeah, I literally, I typed out, you know, the route he was going to take. And I basically followed it through Google Earth and kind of just used that as like a descriptor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, got to love technology. Yeah, I really, uh, it was interesting because like I said, I read the story when that anthology came out. I hadn't connected it to your name because like I said, I was just kind of learning who everyone was in this whole scene. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was like, what, five years ago when that came out? Four or five I think years that ago? was, well, I think it was very early 2020, so like three years ago. Oh, Wow, my time's way off. (laughs) But still, I mean, it's quite a while ago. (laughs) It was like, my memories, it's kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I, but going back and rereading it this morning, like I was really impressed with that story. And like I said, it it hit home because I, you know, I've driven through that area. I've never actually encountered anything myself. Like I said, I've had friends who at least have claimed to have had encounters and I've heard other things, but uh, having driven through there, like I said, you just, you feel something that feels different. Yeah. It feels, you know, there are parts of Southern California that have a little bit of that feeling and i've heard that there are parts of nevada that have that feeling just uh like you said that kind of thinness between worlds kind of feel yeah well i want to go back a little bit so just kind of like tell me like you know you're you're from missouri i know you're also a musician i want to talk about that as well but like you know just what was your kind of history with the horror genre and kind of how did you find your way to being a horror writer uh well i started like officially writing and like trying to take it seriously around 2017 and uh you know i've always been an avid horror reader which i feel like most writers are or most horror you know i always loved reading loved uh you know stephen king dean coons in high school that was my start Mm -hmm. and uh, you know i tried a couple times like in high school and college uh to like write and i get like a thousand words in i'd be like this is going nowhere and i would just give up on it but uh you know it wasn't until i read stephen king's on writing that it just mm. kind of clicked for me, you know, that book yeah. really is, I would credit that for starting my writing career. Cause I was always under the impression, you know, you had to go to college, mm-hmm. you had to get your master's in literature or whatever. And like, it sucks. Cause like in college, I had the opportunity to take literature classes, but that was before I really mm-hmm. decided I wanted to write. So I kind of missed an opportunity there, but then I heard, you know, reading through King's account of like working at a factory and he would to write on his spare time. Right. He'd take a salt pill for his lunch and just go and write. You know, he, I think he did go to college in Maine for something writing related, but like he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I think he was an English major because I know he was yeah. English. He was like a high school English teacher, I think, for. Yeah, he taught for a couple of years, but like, you know, years. he was a layman. He was your everyday dude. 
And right. he, you know, started writing, ended up getting uh, Perry published and uh, made me realize, you know, you can just be, as long as you have the passion to do it, you can start. And um, so after reading on writing, I started trying to do it a little bit more, uh, mm-hmm. started writing short stories and stuff. And, you know, I feel like everyone's journey, when you first start writing, you know, you're trying to f- find your voice and all that. So my right. first couple dozen stories weren't very good you know i was just trying to figure out the craft mm-hmm. you know sitting it out getting tons of rejections and blah 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 and that was another thing reading stephen king's on writing he talked about how he had the railroad spike in his room and he put all mm-hmm. the rejections on it because yeah. you know i got like probably 20 or 30 rejections and i was like wow i really suck at this and uh but i kept going you know and i yeah. kept writing i kept reading and i got my first publication with a uh, gehenna and Hinnom press with the they're not around anymore, but they were. I was going to ask, uh, like I remember, I think they had just sort of folded when I started submitting stuff. Yeah, which is unfortunate. I love uh, mm-hmm. CP Dunphy. He was one of the best editors I've ever worked with. I sent mm-hmm. him probably five stories. He rejected all but one of them. I ended up in their 2017 Year's Best anthology with a bunch of awesome writers. Oh, cool. But every single story, you know, he went through and gave me critique. He was like, "This part works. This doesn't." Blah blah mm-hmm. blah. And I've yet to work with an editor who like so consistently just gave me feedback but uh unfortunately due to like monetary stuff they ended up closing down but they uh yeah i think they published a few short stories from my josh mallerman before he blew up and uh a couple other like they you know he had a good eye for really good writers there was a couple writers i can't remember off the top of my head but like they're big names now and he kind of discovered them so Mm really honored somehow that my first publication was with them yeah that really fueled the fire and i kind of kept going from there and five six years later here i am yeah well it's interesting what you're saying about you know uh the book on writing really being kind of the trigger and you know what you were saying about you know feeling that kind of stumbling block of you know, feeling like oh this is something i have to study in college like if you don't do this you can't you know be a real writer or whatever mm. that you know i think i had that too and so i did you know i did study writing in college i started you know because i started writing when i was very young and i got pretty serious about it when i was in high school and then uh i ended up you know going on getting an english and journalism degree and then going to film school and getting a master's degree in screenwriting and one thing i can say is like it did not teach me how to be a writer <laughs> right do all of that i'm sure i like to as you had but like yeah it's not essential necessarily yeah i mean i did learn some things i mean i do think it kind of taught me how to be a filmmaker because i really had no idea how to make a movie <laughs> before yeah. I did that. but you know i think it was just a matter of just like doing it and then doing it again and again and again and like you said you know about the idea of you know the first few things you write are not going to be very good and i think a lot of times i run into this with students because i teach writing and if it's you know someone's nude if someone's new to writing it's maybe something they want to try but they're very nervous about it if it doesn't come out perfect the first time they want to give up you know and uh, i think it was robert rodriguez the director who said something like you know to be a filmmaker you have to make like 30 really shitty short films to finally make a good one and i think that's probably (laughs) i don't know if it has to be 30 but you definitely do need to kind of yeah it's trial by error kind of thing that trial by error exactly really you gotta just uh, figure it out you know i think i read an interview with joe lansdale whenever he decided Mm -hmm. he was going to writing he said he wrote like 100 short stories and he said he was getting the suck out is uh, the way he put it. I need to remember that, getting the suck out. Yeah, I'm always trying to find ways with my students to kind of encourage them because it is one thing I see is a problem is, is people, when you're new to something and you're not, you know, maybe you have the talent or the drive, but you don't quite have the skill set yet. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's the same as a musician. Well, in fact, that was my my experience as a musician. I tried to learn the guitar when I was in high school. I played the saxophone in marching band all through high school. And I was I just wasn't very good. And in retrospect, is it like, was I untalented or was it like it was hard? And I got kind of like, I stopped trying, you know what I mean? But I see this with students, you know, they lose confidence so easily if something doesn't quite come out exactly the way they imagine it. How did you kind of overcome that initial, I guess, stumbling block when you really started getting serious about it? I kind of had an epiphany, I guess, Mm -hmm. when I I started listening to more writer interviews Mm -hmm. and really learning, you know, how other people dealt with this because I was like, you know, Am I the only one here who just had like a really hard time starting and, mm-hmm. you know, getting constant rejections and all that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I understood it as I learned, you know, there's like, there's pantsing, there's plotting, blah, blah, blah. Right. That uh, I was able to, I think another, I keep coming back to this, but Stephen King was talking about, you know, just finish it, you know, mm-hmm. finish the story. Doesn't matter if you think it sucks or not. And like the first thing I ever wrote was this God awful, like 120,000 <laughs> word novel. <laughs> that wasn't going anywhere but yeah. you know i just had that in the back of my mind you know finish it doesn't matter don't leave it mm-hmm. unfinished and uh i just kept doing that i kept writing shorts and i was finishing them it didn't matter like i knew these weren't good but just seeing it to through to the end was like a little dopamine rush in itself mm-hmm. you know i wrote it i wrote this damn story it may not show up anywhere but so the yeah. act of completion became like its own little reward for me mm. and i guess yeah. that in itself kind of you know, got me over. Like I said, I tried a couple times in high school and college. I didn't even, I had no idea I was going to want to try and be a writer, you know, later on in life. I just didn't like to read a lot. And, uh, you know, so I never had that like inkling as a child to start stories, all this stuff I'm talking about. I was like in my early twenties when this mm-hmm. was going on. And, uh, yeah. So really just finishing the stories in general was really what helped me get over that stumbling block of, you know, this isn't perfect, you know, right. this probably sucks, but I did it. I did the damn thing. Kind mm-hmm. of thing. Well, I think that is important. I mean, I think I, you know, I tell my students all the time because I teach screenwriting and screenwriting in particular, I think is a good discipline to learn, even if you're not that interested in being a screenwriter, because what it really teaches you is how to break story down into components, mm-hmm. which can be a little harder to do sometimes, I think, with prose. And like, you know, because you're you're going from scene to scene to scene. And so it's like, how do I make this scene work and how do I get to the next scene? And, you know, sometimes and I've run into this myself as a as a screenwriter where you get into a scene that's like, I know what the next scene is, but why is it this scene sucks? <laughs> like, right. why can't I get through this scene to get to what I know is going to be a better? And so what you got to do is you just got to give yourself permission to write the shitty version of something. You know, yeah. you can always. And one thing I think screenwriting really taught me that I think my years, you know, in high school when I was trying to be a prose writer, I maybe hadn't quite internalized yet is if it sucks you can always fix it like nothing yeah. set in stone you can always you know the revision process is really where things a lot of times kind of come alive you know but you got to give yourself that permission to like hey it's okay like yeah i know this this is terrible but get the thing done and then go back and and fix it you know because a lot of times once once you write the shitty version that's when you can kind of see oh this is why it sucks and this is how to yeah, fix it. absolutely um, I was just going to ask, like, what what were some of the things? Because I love, I mean, I'm a huge Stephen King fan, as most of us are. And mm. I love on writing. And I actually do use that um, sometimes in my classes. What were some of the, like, very specific things, or some of the other specific things that you kind of took from that book that really helped you? Uh, well, the, the main thing, and I still use it to this day, because uh, 
I do outline a little bit. Like I'm getting more mm -hmm. into novel writing now. Uh, I, I was always a short story writer and I've only recently gotten into longer form fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, he does like the found fossil method. You know, he doesn't ever plot and uh, which is part of the reason why his endings can sometimes flop mm -hmm. a little bit. My opinion yeah. but you know he's like you have an idea you just got to uncover it and that really clicked with me you know because that was part of my to even start before i got into my you know just finish it mindset was like okay i have an idea what the hell am i going to do with it you mm -hmm. know and i try and sit there and outline and then i get frustrated because as i'm writing the story changes from the outline and i'm like ah oh, mm -hmm. this outline is useless this is you know and Mm -hmm. Once you start talking about the way he writes, you know, which is essentially by the pants or whatever you want to call it, pants, seat of your pants. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a way more rewarding way to write. You know, mm -hmm. that was a big thing was the way, you know, that was, the, I think what he called it was the found fossil process. And yeah. he put up like a little writing exercise where I was like, okay, you have a knife on a table, uh, something happens, you know, just run with it. And mm -hmm. um that really clicked for me because I was, like I said, I was getting so caught up in the plotting and the fact that I couldn't stick my plots. I was like, I'm a terrible writer. I can't even plot out my own stuff. And then I just started, mm -hmm. you know, just going with it. And uh, like I said, now that I'm into like longer form writing, I do plot a little bit. I kind of plot as I go, hybrid, mm -hmm. whatever. Right. So that really stuck with me, the way he does his stuff uh, or the way he writes, essentially. Yeah. Second one would probably be like... Um, he was talking about like his writer's toolbox, you know, because one mm -hmm. thing I think I missed out on that I'm sure like formal education teaches you is like the craft, mm -hmm. you know, grammar, plot devices, tropes, all this stuff. And I only knew all this from reading, you know, I had to figure out, you know, oh, the whole clenching your fists until the your mm -hmm. like crescent marks. That's a really overused shitty trope. Don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> he kind of enlightened that for me a little bit being like you know watch out as you're reading you know be a constructive reader as well as enjoying the reading mm -hmm. and kind of seeing how the pros do it and notice you know what tropes are overused what turns of phrase right used a lot and uh so he kind of taught me to be like an active reader as well mm -hmm. because like i said i've gotten a lot more into like reading books on the craft like for a while on writing was the only thing i read for a while but uh like yeah he kind of taught me to be aware of more more stuff like that and uh, mm -hmm. as i expanded my reading for a while i try and you know pleasure read but also critical read as well because i'm always trying to learn you know from my favorite authors oh they did this thing that's really effective why is that effective right you kind of opened my eyes to you know studying the greats and yeah learning what you can well and i think one of the this is going to sound like a, a backhanded thing that I'm going to say, so I'll qualify it. But I think one of the great things about having Stephen King as kind of a model for a lot of us is that, and you kind of alluded to it with his problems with endings, like he's not a flawless writer. You know? Oh, absolutely. And he doesn't really claim to be, you know? Mm -hmm. And there is, I mean, one of my favorite quotes of his is always, you know, his, I don't remember when he said it, it was probably back in the 80s, but where he's like, I'm basically the Big Mac and fries of American letters. Yep. Which is like, you know, obviously I think he's better than that. But <laughs> I think having that kind of unpretentiousness and him kind of like, he'll talk about his own flaws and stuff he's written. Mm. And he can, what, what I love about reading Stephen King, he's still my favorite writer, even though I don't think he's necessarily the quote best writer <laughs> mm -hmm. um is that it's a little bit like i would imagine if, if again if you're a musician and you're trying to learn this instrument and then you listen to like you know the ramones for the first time and it's like oh i could do that mm -hmm. like you don't have to be you know kirk hammett 
<laughs> you know, yeah. uh, like there's something about just like the raw power, the raw energy and kind of the immediacy of his writing and the fact that the flaws are kind of like out in the open that, it, that it, for me, it was always kind of encouraging. It's like I if I was trying to compare myself early on, to I don't know, like Shirley Jackson or something where her prose is just so perfect. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been much more terrifying to me to try and think about, like, how am I going to do this? What about horror? Like, what is what was it? Have you always been a horror fan? And what was it that kind of drew you to this genre? Uh, it's actually funny. When I was a kid, I used to be a huge scaredy cat. Like, <laughs> one of my first experiences with horror was the the early 2000s Godzilla movie that had, uh, I can't remember who was in it, but it was like kind of the, the black sheep of the Godzilla movies. Yeah, and that I was... was like, that was uh, Matthew Broderick, wasn't that? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. But I was like nine, I think, when that came out. Uh, I don't know, I'm 31. I can't remember when that came out. I was I was a kid, though. And, yeah, uh, it was like late 90s, so that's probably about right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, but the scene where, like, he's walking through the city and, like, you just hear the massive footsteps. Mm-hmm. My dad had that. And then, like, I lost my shit, like, ran out of the theater screaming. <laughs> like, I, for a while, as a kid, I couldn't do horror at all. Hmm. And I honestly don't know when the change happened. Mostly, I think when I got into gaming, I got into, like, more horror gaming, like, the early hmm. Resident and stuff, and, like, that adrenaline rush, you know, right. being on edge, I started to become addicted to that. Mm-hmm. And then, I'd always been an avid reader, and it wasn't until I got into high school, and luckily, my high school was, uh, our library was freaking awesome. We had a huge selection of books. This was before mm-hmm. Missouri became known as a really shitty book banning state but yeah, um yeah. I, my first encounter was dean koontz the early mm. dean Kuntz, before he became like a thriller writer i think it was uh the watchers oh yeah that, like hooked me you know i was my mm. first time reading. like you know as a kid it's easy to get scared by like books like actual horror books i know like as adults we don't really get scared anymore it's about character development suspense and all that but anyway <laughs> reading Koontz and like i had that similar thrill you know to like playing the the horror games and i was like oh i really like this so i devoured pretty much all the Koontz there was i read mm-hmm. all and then i got into king and i got into more some of the more like graphic stuff like it and all that mm-hmm. you know just really the more mature stuff and uh that kind of really set it off for me as far as that. Then I got into college. I went to college for psychology. And that was, for a while, I kind of stopped reading because I was so, like, academically focused. I didn't have right. energy to read. And uh, I started reading more about halfway through college. And I, I did a lot of audiobooks. That was, the most, that was the main way I read for a while until I started, mm-hmm. like, physically reading again. And I realized it's just what I naturally gravitate to. You know, I love, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I read a lot out of, outside the genre. Like I love Cormac McCarthy. He's a huge oh, uh, yeah. favorite of mine. And, um, you know, I, I read a lot of the classics like Ernest Hemingway, but mm-hmm. I don't know, man, something about horror, just the visceralness of it. Like it's where you see the rawest human emotions. It's where you see a lot of, you know, your most visceral character development when people are dealing with life and death. And I guess mm-hmm. I just really put me. Is Watchers the one I'm trying to? It's been a while since I've read Coons. Mm-hmm. Is Watchers the one with the golden retriever with the dog? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he has a lot of dogs in his books, but yes, that one yeah. that's what he's probably doing his whole dog moniker thing. But yeah, right. right, yeah, that book. There are a couple Dean Coons books that, and um, I think it's I forget the name is it like Dragon Tears or something like that? Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, those two books have just like stuck in my mind over the years you know i always kind of i think when i was younger because i got into king he was my entry into the genre Mm -hmm. and i think 
I quickly and kind of stupidly started like looking down my nose at Dean Koontz. <laughs> there's that weird, there's like that dumb fan rivalry that happened, I think. And, and you know, and this was in the like uh, late 80s, early 90s when I started reading stuff. So it was probably like at its height. Mm-hmm. There was like a really dumb fan rivalry for a while between like you were either a King fan or a Koontz fan. Oh. So I think I decided that I was a King fan. But when I look back, I'm like, I actually really liked Dean Koontz. I don't know why I told myself I didn't. I was the opposite. I had started reading Dean Koontz and I was like, no one could do it better than this guy. You know, this mm-hmm. is this is stuff right here. And I had people recommending Stephen King. And I was like, ah, no, you know, I'm good. And I, mm-hmm. I can't remember what the first King book I read was. It might have uh, been Insomnia, which is interesting because uh, that one's mm. kind of like, that's like and, a weird one to be your first one. <laughs> yeah. And I ended up like loving it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just kind of dominoed from there into reading, you know, when I was a high schooler, I read voraciously. I I can't read as fast as I used to. So like mm-hmm. back then on lunch breaks, I would just be burning through all those books. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. My first King book was uh, Pet Cemetery, And then, yeah, well, I think that was the perfect because I was already, I didn't really know that I was a horror fan, but I was already like the weird kid in the creepy shit. Like, <laughs> and starting with Pat Cemetery, which is like his, like one of his most just straight up balls to the wall horror novels, I think was like, it, it just kind of solidified. I was probably 12 years old, I think. And it just wow. kind of solidified it for me. Yeah. Yeah. I can't that like 12 years old. <laughs> That's... Well, and then I followed that up very quickly with Clive Barker. I got into Clive Barker when I was really young. I read, um, it was right when it first came out, I read The Great and Secret Show. I remember it was still in hardback. Oh, nice. So I was maybe 13, which is like pretty young. Like Barker's like, that was pretty young to get into Clive Barker. Yeah. Because <laughs> then I went from there to like the Damnation game and, you know, the Books of Blood. And it was like, oh, this is like a whole other level of Yep. stuff <laughs> but uh yeah like with dean Koontz, it's interesting because now hearing that he was such a big influence on you because i think i mean i i don't necessarily i wouldn't have necessarily thought it until you said it but i think i can kind of see the influence in some of your stories the way he kind of walks the line between horror sci-fi and kind of very action-oriented mm-hmm. it seems like I, I feel like that's something that i can see kind of coming through particularly in some of your short fiction and even in autonomous, um, which I do want to get to. Mm. And there's, you have one thing I like about your writing is that you have a a very kind of no frills, like let's like we're we're just gonna do this thing kind of <laughs> style. Like it's like you're not you know trying to pretty it up for us. It's just like let's just let's just do this thing. Let's just go for it. Right. And I think that's something that I associate with writers like Dean Koontz. Whereas like as much as I love Stephen King, he can meander quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. He can kind of fall in love with the sound of his own voice, and it's definitely. And I feel like that's something that I try to be aware of in my own writing is that I think I have a lot of that. Influence from Stephen King and sometimes it works out okay but sometimes it's maybe not for the best (laughs) right I I like how like I was just thinking about your story Warborn it's in the heavy metal nightmares oh yeah yeah. anthology so I just real quick like give a want to hear kind of your uh thumbnail description of that story because that's a that was that's a little bit of a hard one to kind of sum up right well uh you know it's I guess if you had to call it a genre it's like dystopian cyberpunk i guess but uh, Mm -hmm. you know the world i don't really explicitly say it but it's like post nuclear uh holocaust you know and there's like little bands of society still around like cities and stuff and it's like only the richest and elitist are like Mm -hmm. in the actual 
society. And then you have all these like warring bands of just like uh, kind of like Mad Max kind of if you had to like, mm-hmm. visualize it. And uh, there's this band. They're like the only actual band left called Warborn. There's all this crazy technology. You know, the way I describe it is like their their instruments, the sound waves can physically hurt people. Mm-hmm. They're physically you know they have like subwoofers that can tear buildings apart and, i uh, love the uh the image of when he's doing the sound check and the birds fly in front of the speaker they just get vaporized <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, but it's like uh this traveling band basically mm-hmm. and uh the vocalist used to be like part of the military so he has this huge like traveling um leviathan tank thing that they travel mm-hmm. around it. it's like their sound stage and everything and Basically, it's about a bass player. Their bass player dies of an assassination attempt by, like, the rogue military element still capable of doing stuff in the world. And so they hire this new bassist, and right as they hire him, they start playing shows. The uh, the military element comes in, like, look, you guys got to stop this shit. You're, they have, like, little coalitions around the world, and they basically play these coalitions, get people riled up because they're like a metal band. And they cause chaos and uh, unrest, mm-hmm. and they basically are like, you all, we're shutting it down. Mm-hmm. And eventually they're like no fuck you we're gonna keep going and so they travel to like the biggest city there is it's like the uh the capital of this new country Mm. and uh, they are able to escort themselves in via stealth technology and all Mm. that they basically bring down the whole city with like Mm. noise i imagine when when you were describing the city i think you call it eden in the story yeah i was imagining like dubai but like surrounded by like steel walls you know yeah that was uh when i literally when i saw like some of the cities like the united arab emirates and it's like the most Mm -hmm. blatant like millionaire constructed city ever that's exactly what i had in my mind right i think because you even say they were going down into like the sandy the sand wastes or whatever yeah have you read the book station 11 I have not, but I've heard a lot about it. So I almost want to recommend it because like now I have, like if I ever, I I teach film, I don't teach literature, Mm -hmm. but if I ever taught like a lit course, I would want to do like a module where the students have to read Station Eleven and then have to read Warborn okay. because they're like they're like a weird mirror image to each other. Because Station Eleven, it's you know set in this dystopian post-apocalyptic future, and it's about this traveling Shakespeare company. Oh, uh, that goes and performs Shakespeare. You know, and there's obviously a lot more to the story, right? But they go do Shakespeare plays all in these like settlements throughout kind of the Great Lakes region. And it's, you know, there's a lot of darkness in that book, but it's very literary. It's very, there's like also a gentleness to it. It's Mm -hmm. a sweetness to it. And then you have Warborn, which is just like almost a similar setup. It's a metal band instead of a Shakespeare company, but it is like the most like metal version of that story. There's nothing sweet or gentle about that story. They're just going in and literally pulverizing with their music. And I love that. Like, I love the, I love the idea of using like weaponizing art Mm. or creativity in some way where it's like, where it becomes an actual literal weapon. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. And I've got to imagine, I mean that, cause you're also a musician. Talk about that a little bit like that. You had to have pulled some inspiration from your experience there. Oh, absolutely. Um, Actually the whole like seed of how that story started was a, I can't remember what conflict it was, but there was like a hostage situation and the U.S. Army had developed a uh, sonic weapon, basically. It was like a directional Mm. and they were blasting, I think it was Metallica, Nine Inch Nails, 
and a couple other metal bands at this building that had like they had like some kind of u.s uh ambassadors held hostage mm -hmm. and i also did this at waco too where they literally just blasted mm -hmm. music at them for they did that I believe in Panama with Noriega as well. That yeah. Yeah. There was a couple times where like that was, that happened. And I was like, you know, that's so just messed up, you know, imagine being mm -hmm. James Hatfield and he realized your music's being used as like a, a literal weapon, you know, and right. that's how that whole story kind of germinated. But yeah, I am a musician and, uh, you know, I've played, uh, I'm not, I've never been like a huge musician, but I've played like pack shows before and mm -hmm. kind of realized there's a power to it, you know, when you're mm -hmm. on stage, you got the whole room wrapped up in your music and everyone's like screaming along with the lyrics. And so I like use that metaphor of power and then like the weaponization of sound and kind of brought them together, I guess. Yeah. I mean, so, there is, cause I'm, like I said, I'm not, I'm, I guess I would say I'm a failed musician, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I'm definitely a fan. And, you know, I go, I, when I was in college, we used to go to death metal shows all the time. And I mean, like, there's nothing worse than being stuck in the middle of a bad death metal show. But when it's good, like you said, like there is a power to it. You know, I have friends who, you know, most of my friends here in Albuquerque are not into metal mm -hmm. and they don't really get it. Like on my other podcast, uh, the weirdest thing, you know, my co-host Amelia mm -hmm. is like the opposite of a metal fan. <laughs> and it right. definitely comes up on the show where she's like, yeah, I don't, I just don't get it. Like she can't, mm -hmm. she can hang in for about 30 seconds and then that's, that's her limit. And it's a really hard thing to explain to someone who's not in, like, why does literally like the music hurting your ears why is that pleasurable right <laughs> but it is yeah and it, in a way it's kind of like going to horror you know mm. reading something that scares you or traumatizes you in some way like what is that impulse to like go to stuff that's got that kind of like it's not pleasant you know but it's not supposed to be Mm -hmm. um, and I was just listening to your EP, Beastial, this morning as I was reading some of your stories. And, like, it's really good. I mean, it's really oh. who, who are some of the... So that's your band, right? Yeah, my little studio project, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What are the, um, like, what are the some of the specific influences there? Because I think I could hear them, but I kind of... Uh, I'm curious to see if I'm hearing the same bands. <laughs> right. Well, so I know you listen to, like, a lot of Doom and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. uh how much you listen to the type of metal i listen to but like i've had early influences like i started on metallica mm -hmm. and, Slayer and all the you know the big four whatever but uh right somewhere when i was 15 or so i started getting into the more extreme stuff style of metal mm -hmm. uh, like devin townsend's strapping young lads yeah, i was gonna ask if strapping young lad was an influence because i thought i could hear that i love Stra they're one of my favorite bands yeah, I love anything Devin does. It's so freaking good. But uh, mm -hmm. he was like the earliest progenitor of that, like extreme progressive style of, mm -hmm. um, you know, like really down tuned guitars, really chaotic riffs. You can't, mm -hmm. there's no like beat. You can really beat your head to. It's just like chaos, you know. Mm -hmm. He was definitely an earlier style. Uh, one of my favorite bands ever. They're from Sweden. They're called Meshuga, mm -hmm. which is a Yiddish word for crazy. Yep. Um, yeah. I thought I had, uh, I thought I heard the Meshuggah influence in there too. <laughs> they're probably my biggest influence. I discovered uh, Meshuggah when I was in high school, mm -hmm. which to anyone who has ever um, listened to them, they're very like abrasive math metal. They use a lot of complex patterns in their music. Mm -hmm. First time I heard them, I was like, this is stupid. This is like the same note over <laughs> and over. I don't like this. 
And then like later on, you know, I listened to him again. And I guess it all kind of clicked. Mm-hmm. I feel like for me, Meshuggah and Dillinger at Skate Plan have, I mean, they sound very different, mm-hmm. but they have a similar thing that if you're not listening to them closely, it sounds like four musicians or five musicians playing like five different songs at the same time because everything feels like off the beat from everybody else but then when you listen and you realize how integrated those parts are it's it's really like it like you're right it's mathematical Mm -hmm. um but they're but those are not bands you can just like like i love Sugar, but i can't have Sugar just like on in the background Mm -hmm. like when i listen to Sugar, i have to like kind of be like i'm gonna set aside some time because i want to listen to Sugar. you know yeah it's not easy listening music a lot of metal musicians like Meshuggah because they they can see through the chaos you know what's going Mm -hmm. like um my fiance not really a big metal head she likes some stuff but like when we were dating she was like what kind of music you listen to and i was like oh boy um <laughs> let me just show you and please don't run away in horror yeah i've had the conversation with girlfriends as well <laughs> yeah and uh but i don't know something about the the chaos you know and mm. like finding serenity in the chaos really spoke to me and as i developed as a musician and was able to start playing some more like complicated stuff messing around with like time signatures and stuff i was like this mm-hmm. is kind of really what i want to do yeah well i love i mean i love the devin townsend influence and like one thing like devin townsend more than almost and and this is true with strapping young lad but also across a lot of his solo projects just the wall of sound he can create where Mm -hmm. it's just this dense just wave coming at you but once you're kind of accustomed your ears to it you can hear all this like intricacy in what he's doing i also love how you know like strapping young lad were so dark Mm -hmm. you know kind of with a lot of humor too yeah but definitely you know there's just a a lot of like that anger and rage that you expect from metal and then you have some of his other i'm trying to remember the solo album it's got the music video with the gorillas playing (laughs) oh man he's very diverse a lot of his stuff sounds yeah almost like a totally different artist wrote it he's so just he's all over the place yeah he's moved into he's moved into this where he still will use like these big thick slabs of sound but then it's this more kind of almost positive uplifting it's like he kind of burned himself out i think on the darkness of strapping and lad and was like i i need to like do something different with my brain and is kind of moving in this other direction and i love all of it like i I actually think he kind of does both equally well Mm. do you consider yourself like a musician first and the writing is kind of like something you're building under that or are they kind of like equal importance at this stage like where do you kind of set them beside each other well that's an interesting question when i first got into writing it was definitely like um a secret thing I did like mm-hmm. to those who are uh, like know me personally, Richard Beauchamp is my pin name. And the right. reason why I started writing with a pin name is because like, I was really insecure with my writing. I didn't think I was good at all. Mm-hmm. And like some of those rejection letters were pretty uh, strongly worded, mm, interesting. I, but I definitely had some editors who were like this. No, this is not good. This is unsalvageable. Like, wow. Just a lot of negative, you know, tearing me apart kind of thing. And, uh, I always wonder, like, why, you know, because I think about this, like, with my students and I'm giving feedback, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'll read stuff that's, like, not good. And like you said, you know, when we first start off with something, often we're not that good. Mm-hmm. Um, But what good does it serve for me to, like, tear somebody down? Right. Try to well, stop them in their tracks, you know? 
one of these editors, which again, I'm not going to name names, but they've kind of been outed as an asshole and they kind of got canceled. So I don't feel that bad. He apparently did that with everybody. But uh, Oh, I think I'm, we'll, we'll leave the name uh, unsaid, but I think I know probably exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So for a while, you know, I definitely, my identity is as a musician, um, along with being a musician, I also run a recording studio. And so like mm-hmm. in my small little Missouri town, I was like, pretty much the only one doing that and uh so i definitely was known as like the producer guy or the engineer guy Mm -hmm. in bands i was recording bands i was producing bands so music was definitely my like primary identity for a very long time but um Mm -hmm. interestingly enough they've kind of switched roles a bit because i i still love music and uh i still you know in, in bands and stuff i do a lot of writing like my main income source right now is doing um commercial you know jingles and stuff uh music mm-hmm. licensing but um as i got older you know i was a very pissed off young man uh mm-hmm. in my 20s stuff and a lot of my music reflects that and uh i don't know just touring and constantly playing shows was really starting mm-hmm. to wear on me like physically like i have a lot of back problems. sure and like in a metal band you know you're head banging you gotta carry 50 pound cabs off stage you're on the road till 4 a.m and like you're hung over because you're drinking with your buddies all the time it's mm-hmm. <laughs> physically wearing lifestyle right as i I guess started to get published more and started like you know working my way up from like token payment anthologies to like getting in semi-pro markets and i guess getting validation you know i started focusing more on my writing and like setting more time aside during the day to write then finally it kind of came about by accident because like i said i was writing under a pen name for a long time um mostly because i was really insecure b i have like really conservative Mm -hmm. religion members mm-hmm. and you know when you hear about a family member who's an author like oh i want to buy all your books and support you and i'm like you don't want to yeah. read what i've written I've, you, you, i have I've, some family members i've had to kind of steer away from things yeah <laughs> yeah Sim- similar reasons yeah but uh there was like a publisher i can't remember which one but you know in these days they expect you to do part of the promotion you know and mm-hmm. promote yourself well and uh they i was friends with the editor on my personal like facebook account and they started tagging me in like publishing stuff because you know i didn't have like a facebook page for my pin name at the time and so more and more people were like oh you you write books too and um you know I guess my author identity has come out more in like the public. Mm -hmm. All my musician friends, most of them aren't readers. And then I have all my like writer friends who are strictly, that's all they do is read and write. And so it was like two identities almost. In these later years, they've kind of slowly come together, I guess. And more and more people, you know, know me more as like a writer now than musician versus how it was before. And Mm -hmm. so I guess almost equal now where yeah they're yeah i can't say one is more dominant than the other these days i mean i had i went through because you know for me i was a writer when i was really young but then i went to film school and i spent uh well over a decade working in movies mm. and you know making movies writing movies working with producers you know just all of it and i think i had a similar trajectory to what you're describing with the the film stuff where or with the music is after a while, it just got to be like so hard. It just felt like everything was a struggle to get anything done. I can imagine with film, you know, there's so many moving mm-hmm. elements. Whereas with a writer, you know, you just you need your work you process. Down you write the thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Movies are so like, uh, my, my nephew is currently in college and he's trying to get into screenwriting and mm-hmm. he came to me cause he knew I was a writer and I was like, dude, those two things are like so different. And like I tried <laughs> to help him, but I was like, I really am not qualified to speak on this. And yeah, it's really, I can only imagine the struggle of like getting a movie from like start screenwriting to mm-hmm. finish product, you know? So. Yeah. 
and you know, and I've done you know short films. I've done things like the Forty Eight Hour Film Project, where it's you know making a movie in a weekend, and then you know all the way up to a feature film, which was you mm. know a couple years of planning and then raising the money ourselves and you know lining up all the locations doing all the casting and then going from that also you know having worked as a professional screenwriter and you know then everything is like all the compromises you have to make (laughs) Mm. you know and and after a while it was just like I really needed to get back to for me it was getting back to kind of my roots which was you know I had been submitting you know you're talking about like Stephen King with the the nail on the wall where you put the rejection letters mm-hmm. I had a file cabinet when I was in high school and I would put all the rejection letters in and I ended up filling up an entire file cabinet right I mean it was hundreds of rejections over the course of probably from like eighth grade to through college and then I got you know I moved into film I kind of set that aside for almost a couple decades at least about 15 years at least and then coming back it was like this whole new world there's all these writers I hadn't been paying attention to (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know all of a sudden there's all these publishing companies you know with the internet all of a sudden it seemed like there was way more venues to get your stuff out there the connection between like being a fan and being a writer seemed to be kind of collapsing and it was much more appealing in a way. <laughs> yeah. Because I think the part of why I moved into film was like, you know, back in the 90s when I was writing, it was like pretty lonely. You know, I didn't know any other horror writers. There was like four places you could submit. It was like Weird Tales and Cemetery Dance, a couple other places. Mm. And there was no social media. <laughs> so like, you don't know who else is out there doing things. You're just kind of writing stuff, sending it out and getting these like two line form letters back, you know? Right. And like, now it just feels so different. And I think that that's actually maybe a, a segue. Because one thing I want to talk about is you and I both have a relationship with the same publishing company. Dark Peninsula mm. Press, and we have a couple stories. You have a story called Black Tongue. It's in the first negative space anthology, mm. which is an anthology of survival horror. And then that also ended up being the title of your collection, which remind me, is it DMB Publishing? DNT. DNT Publishing. That's right. Yeah. That came out, what, uh, like two years ago, I think, like 2021. Yeah. yeah. And then we both have stories coming up in the negative space volume two collection which Mm -hmm. i think is coming out like within a day of this episode being released so i'll definitely post a link to that in the show notes but i want to talk a little bit about your new story that's in the new anthology and then i'd kind of like to go back and talk just a little bit about black tongue as well yeah so your new story it's uh called badlands i read it uh we we exchanged Mm -hmm. stories the other day Mm -hmm. so i really liked yours by the way oh thank you I love, uh, I've been to Yosemite as a kid and uh, mm. El Capitan, like his <laughs> beautiful, one of the most beautiful things. And he got this mm. very little bod- bodily dismemberment scene. But um, <laughs> yeah, right. anyway. What's, what's funny is I've actually never been to Yosemite. <laughs> really? Job describing it. Oh, thank you. I mean, I feel like the landscape is like, okay, that I've seen pictures. I've been in Northern California enough to be like, it's similar enough to Colorado, which is right. where I've, I've spent a lot of time in Colorado. So I was kind of collapsing the two maybe a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, talk a little bit about Badlands, kind of where that story came from and uh, what your approach was. And, you know, the theme is survival horror. So like, what was your approach to that theme uh well and you'll notice this with the uh, black tongue i do a lot of like wilderness type mm-hmm. uh antiquated horror you know um i'm a outdoorsman myself i do a lot of camping a lot of mm-hmm. fish, kayaking and stuff and so the nature really comes through in a lot of my stories yeah 
And Badland is one of many what I call Ozark stories that I've started writing, um, mm-hmm. where uh, I have kind of a fictional town. Uh, this one's New Hamlin, where uh, mm. it's kind of like my Castle Rock. I've been basing a lot of my stories there. But uh, for those who don't know, which is probably won't, it's a very regional thing, but uh, the Missouri are Ozarks, which is, uh, we can't really call them mountains. They are to me, but, you know, foothills, mm-hmm. I guess. Very beautiful part of the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, very fallen in love with them. But unfortunately, we have a bit of a, a problem with like mining companies coming in, like mm-hmm. with the nations and coal mining. We have lead mining problems. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these really beautiful foothills have a lot of like pollution problems. And um, we've had lead pollution in a lot of our pipes and a lot of our towns. We've even had like whole towns that are like ghost towns because the lead got so bad. And like the uh, they're called slut uh, chat piles. They're just these giant mm-hmm. discarded tailings of lead. And, uh, you know, kids used to play on them and stuff because they didn't know back then that how toxic right. they were. That whole, like, lead poisoning, to poison the land is a theme I use in a lot of my other stories. But Badland is really one of the first ones where I started exploring that. Not to, like, give a bunch of stuff away, but, like, uh, there's a there's a farmer who lives in this fictional town in New Hamlin. And uh, New Hamlin's plagued with a, uh, something is killing off all their cattle, basically. And mm-hmm. uh, he gets... To- with a couple other farmers who uh, are trying to like figure out what the hell's going on, you know, because uh, where I'm from, it's very common. You know, we got coyotes and stuff. Right. And uh, occasionally, you know, sometimes coons will break into your chicken house and kill mm-hmm. part of your chicken. It's just a f- part of life. But yeah, when like it's happening all over and it's just, um, you know, it's clear something's not right. So our main character teams up with another one of these farmers and uh, they basically take it into their own hands to try and figure out what's going on. And uh, I will say it involves caves, mm-hmm. a lot of darkness, like physical darkness. And mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of, I try and do a lot of like, uh, I love like Jack London stories, you know, very rugged, manly kind of things. Not that I try and be manly or anything, but <laughs> like a black tongue, it's the same way. You know, it's like a mm-hmm. hunter trapper dude out in the Canadian Rockies, or whatever. So right. yeah, a lot of like just really gritty, rustic settings, I guess. And uh, Badlands is kind of, part of that whole theme so a couple things that struck me about that story one was you know, my grandfather was from oklahoma mm. and you know which is you know obviously not missouri but i think there's like you know similar there's a similar voice and so like reading kind of the voice of your characters i thought you just captured that rural midwest sort of southern mm-hmm. kind of voice really well without it being like it wasn't what would the word be like it never felt caricature yeah like a parody yeah yeah like it like it was just enough that like i could just hear that voice and i could kind of hear you know my grandfather and people on that side of the family i could kind of hear them talking yeah. you know because it's told in the first person so you have that dialect and then the other thing you know just you know thinking about like your approach versus my approach because with my story it's called brown bear brown bear and it's kind of a takeoff of the old children's book mm-hmm. uh the same name and i kind of twisted into something sort of fucked up and surreal um <laughs> but my story is you know very much you know it's a survival horror story it's also set in the woods it's mm-hmm. in the wilderness but it's very like internal in in the it is it's all about this woman and her relationships with people. And it's interesting hearing you talking about the mining. Like I wouldn't call Badland political, but there was a much more of a overtly, like a little bit of social commentary on this external effect of these polluters and these Mm -hmm. mining companies. And so, you know, yours had a very, like there was a more focus on like 
the world, I guess, and like what's happening to the world, whereas mine is like very much kind of in this character's head. Yeah. And I thought, you know, both, you know, creating survival stories with that kind of contrast, I thought was kind of interesting. And with my story that's in the original negative space, Luminescence, I feel like I was kind of trying to do a little bit more like what you do with Badland, where it's like a little bit more about ecological disaster. Mm-hmm. Was that like, was that something you wanted to, like, was it overt, like, meant to be kind of a commentary or was that more just like sort of the backdrop for the horror story no there's definitely um i've gotten a little bit more pissed off about stuff like that the more Mm -hmm. i spend uh, like right now one of our neighboring towns is currently trying to fight off a silica mine for one of our most beautiful state parks Mm -hmm. uh, we've literally like had a petition sign and everything and i started that that started bleeding more into my fiction definitely like Mm -hmm. sort of a middle finger to those types yeah things and it's also like you know this is where i'm from you know this is my home and you know yeah a lot of people they think of missouri they think of meth cornfields you know mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of both of those but um there's also sure. <laughs> to it you know and i i try and bring that to my stories like there's only one other writer i know who's from missouri who writes about the ozarks and that's daniel Wadrill. he wrote winter's bone have you ever heard of that? Oh, right. Yeah. There's a movie. I've seen the movie. I haven't read the book, but yeah. yeah. And uh, he really captures that unseen side. And so when I mm-hmm. started doing my Ozark stories, there's definitely commentary on, uh, you know, stuff like that. It's definitely overt. And I feel like sometimes I might be a bit too overspoken on it. I try and dial it back because at the end of the day, it's a story, horror story. I'm not trying to mm-hmm. be like, hey, save the world in the middle of it, you know, but it is. It's there. Well, you know, I talked to uh, Douglas Ford, and and it's interesting because he has a similar thing that you're doing where his stuff's very focused on Florida, mm-hmm. tends to be very focused on where he lives in Florida. And he has, you know, you have this, uh, was it it's New Hamlin, right? Mm-hmm. Which he says kind of like your castle rock. And he has Vasaria County mm-hmm. in Florida where he sets a lot of his stuff. Yeah, the, the one wolf story, Wolves of Viscera County, whatever. Uh, the Beasts of Vasaria yeah. County, yeah. Yeah, I've read that. Great, great story. When we talked about that, where like he kind of let the politics come into that story too, in a way that he usually doesn't, mm-hmm. he said. And it was the same thing where he was, you know, he kind of talked about trying to walk that line between like he had something he wanted to say, but fundamentally it's like about telling the story. He didn't want to let the the message kind of overwhelm the story. I thought you guys both did a, a good job of that. Cause I definitely walked away from Badland thinking about the implications of the mining mm-hmm. and and thinking about, you know, because we have a lot of similar things out here. And a lot of the a lot of the ecological damage in New Mexico comes from like oil wells and oil refining. Uh, but then we also have, you know, there's we have a history of uranium mining, uh, specifically a lot of it on like the Navajo reservation. And it's really, mm-hmm. you know, just has this long-term impact on on those communities. So like New Mexico where they did the yeah. nuclear testing as well. Mm-hmm. That's that's actually where I'm from. I'm from Los Alamos, which is where the Manhattan Project was. Wow. Like the Oppenheimer movie that's coming out, mm-hmm. that's about my hometown. <laughs> wow. And then the Trinity test was down kind of in the middle part of the state, um, kind of down by White Sands. But we've had a lot of nuclear tests. We actually have a canyon. I talk about, I, I mentioned this in my conversation with Holly Ray Garcia, where I have a, there's a, I have a novel that I've been working on. It's kind of a crime novel set in Los Alamos called Acid Canyon. And it's based on, there's, or it uses as a backdrop, there's an actual canyon up in Los almost called acid canyon where uh supposedly there's a bunch of like nuclear waste and stuff buried and my mom who grew up there she's like oh we used to go hiking down there and like no one ever right. but yeah you know when you're in these kind of areas because you're right I've, i haven't spent a lot of time in missouri but like just last year i drove through 
kind of the Oklahoma and Arkansas area of mm-hmm. the Ozarks. And it is beautiful. I mean, it is really, there was something about Arkansas that freaked me out and I'm not sure what it was. Parts of Arkansas, for sure. Yeah. It just, it was a little bit almost like what I was saying about like the four corners of New Mexico where like there's just an energy that was like, I'm not sure I like this. Yeah. Weirdly, Oklahoma and Tennessee didn't have that. Mm. Um, But it was, it was gorgeous country, but then like you, you know, you hear about all the coal mining and everything and just how that has had so much effect on those areas. And it does make me think about the uranium mines and the oil refineries and stuff here. Yeah. So that, I guess I want to go back and talk a little bit about Black Tongue. Well, one thing I want to, so you mentioned you have this early editor who was like very helpful to you mm-hmm. and i do i do want to mention dark peninsula press rx sunquest he's kind of been he and rebecca roland have kind of been that for me a little bit i feel like rx is one of the smartest editors i've worked with and that he's very good about like i don't find him to be heavy-handed with his edits mm-hmm. but he's also like he's not afraid to be like yeah i think we need to change this or you know this doesn't quite pop as much as it could or i was about to say aside from cp dumphy the guy i mentioned earlier eric's been one of the working with him has just been an absolute pleasure Mm-hmm. close attention to detail like there's been some anthologies and stuff i've been in where you can tell they're like just kind of going through doing grammar corrections and they're just kind of going but his is much more involved and he the early version of black tongue kind of the ending is way different and he suggested some endings for it and i was like holy crap interesting and uh yeah i agree he's i've never worked with rebecca i know she's a great editor and uh in general very supportive very very awesome and uh yeah, and I'm sure she's a great editor too. But yeah, I love working with Eric for sure. Yeah, well, she and Eric both, and then also the guys at Sinister Smile Press. You know, these are you can tell when you work with an editor where it's like they don't respond to emails. If you get the edits at all, mm. it's like maybe a couple like commas or something, and it's just it feels like like you just get the feeling they don't care that much. Right. Again, not going to name any names. <laughs> and then I've had a few editors. You know, the like I said, the guys at Sinister Smile Press. Rebecca, who Rebecca has been one of like my biggest sort of champions. Mm. And then Eric as well, you know, is someone who just like, I felt like kind of took me under his wing as I was kind of getting started. And like with like, even with Brown Bear, Brown Bear, he made some suggestions to bring certain elements out of the story that for me, it was like, oh yeah, that's obvious. Mm. Like, I don't know how I missed that. So working with that kind of really smart editor, I think is very, I just felt lucky that early on, I was able to get in with a few of these editors who have been very, supportive but also very like you know i've learned a lot yeah oh it's life changing i think the first time a writer writer works with a good editor is like Mm -hmm. i don't know it's like seeing in color for the first time you know it's very enlightening yeah it definitely is so i want to talk about i was kind of holding black tongue off i do want to talk about autonomous a little bit as well but Mm -hmm. i was kind of holding black tongue towards the end because one thing i had asked is like for you to recommend a movie Mm. that we could talk about just i'm always curious like where people's influences are Mm. and you suggested the movie ravenous from 1999 directed by antonia bird and i feel like because i watched i i'd seen it a couple times uh, but it's been quite a while since i'd seen it i I also watched that again this morning and i reread black tongue this morning and i felt like i could definitely like they felt like of a piece to me so kind of talk about that and you kind of mentioned it already this the kind of folk horror in the the wilderness settings that kind of gritty man against nature feel that i felt like black tongue really and and also with the dog i mean i can definitely see the uh jack london influence mm. that you mentioned 
Okay, so talk about that story a little bit and kind of where that came from. Well, actually, uh, the genesis of Black Tongue is uh, whenever I first read To Start a Fire by Jack London. Mm. And uh, the premise is so simple. You know, it's a guy, he's lost out in the woods, he's with his dog. I I read like Jack mm. London in high school, like, uh, was it Hatchet? Or uh, I can't remember, but I read one of his stories. Mm-hmm. That was, again, before I got into writing. But uh, I love the simplicity. And I love the setting. Right. And um, one big thing about Black Tongue is the elements. Like there is supernatural elements uh, in Black Tongue. Like for anyone who hasn't read it, it's about a mm-hmm. hunter slash problem solver named Bronson who uh, gets called out to a mining town that's like on the cusp of Montana and the Canadian territories and people are going missing. So he's basically charged with finding them. And he has a dog, a uh, Mastiff with them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really... Uh, I wanted like mother nature to be like an enemy of itself. Cause I've done a lot of like winter camping and uh, obviously Missouri isn't Montana or Canada, but it gets pretty damn cold here in the winter. I remember there's been times where I've woken up and it'll be like 15 degrees outside. And like, you got to get up to like go pee or something and you don't want to leave your sleeping bag and like just getting up and just that brute force cold. It's like in you, mm-hmm. you know, and I really wanted to capture that. Like just, mm-hmm. For someone who's never experienced like being borderline hypothermia, you know, so I really wanted to encapsulate like how human bodies respond to extreme cold and also the relationship between man and dog, you know, mm-hmm. that was probably my first, uh, I guess you could say Dean Coons really bled in there with the whole like the relation, the profound relationship mm-hmm. with man and dog. Yeah. And yeah, that was probably my first time writing that kind of like antiquated story because it takes place in like the 1800s, 1850s, I think. Mm-hmm. I really like, it's hard for me, which is funny because we're going you know, talk about autonomous, which is like sci-fi horror, but like, it's hard for me to mm-hmm. incorporate modern day technology into my stories. I feel so cringy trying to mention a social media in a story. So I really lean, <laughs> you know, antiquated 1800s. That's a lot of what I write. Mm-hmm. I really, uh, I had a lot of fun with that story. I've never been to Montana or the Canadian territories, but you know, I've seen a lot of it and, uh, mm-hmm. I watch, uh, a lot of like documentaries on that kind of stuff. And I really am just fascinated with that land, you know, like especially back in the day, you know, you had no maps, no GPS. You had no idea what the hell you were going to go into, you know, and right. I really wanted to like play up the, you know, going into the unknown and not knowing what you're going to find. Well, I think you capture that really well. And, you know, you've got this one thing you've done in, a, I think, a few of your stories, because I because I, I also read your story muzzled. I think you do this in Black Tongue. I think you do this in the 2A as well. Well, that it's almost that kind of classic Lovecraftian setup of here's someone who experienced something terrible and they're writing it down, but they're like, you know, you're like, are they crazy or did they actually experience this thing? But it's sort of the, you know, trying to write the story out to kind of keep yourself sane because you can't kind of wrap your head around what you just experienced. Right. And to me, Black Tongue was the most sort of Lovecraftian, like almost overtly Lovecraftian of these stories without being like, you know, obviously it's not a, like a Cthulhu mythos story right. or anything like that, but like just got kind of that feel. And one thing I thought you really captured, which is what folk horror, and, and I would put like a movie like Ravenous, I would put this in kind of the folk horror mm. category. You know, the, the balance between, you know, the interior life of the character being confronted with sort of the harshness of nature and then something ancient and hostile underneath that. Mm. The balance of those elements. And I actually found Black Tongue to be 
pretty scary. Like I, I thought Black Tongue and Chiwa A were were actually kind of like genuinely pretty unnerving for me. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know both of them I've read I've read both of them um, more than once now, and like you know because like Warborn I had just like a lot of fun with it mm-hmm. because like I'm a metal dude and like it's it was just like kind of like what you almost want metal to be, you know, <laughs> like taking it to its extreme. But then you have something like Black Tongue, which you know what. I don't want to get into spoilers, but what happens with the dog was really kind of, as also a dog lover myself, was was kind of hard. You know, just that idea of the the hostility of the elements and the isolate and how small you feel in that situation with this kind of something else, some entity or spirit or something is kind of stalking you. I thought that was really well done in that story. Was Ravenous something that was like specifically in your head when you wrote that? or is that is ravenous just more like kind of typical of the type of thing you that you're kind of influenced by when it comes to that kind of story uh, funny enough ravenous wasn't like in my mind whenever i wrote that story but now that you mention it there are a lot of similarities mm-hmm. like honestly the only, when i moved into the house i'm in now there was a while before we had internet so um, i had no access to anything and i have like this box of dvds that i've had Mm-hmm. gone with me from several apartments and it's just all kinds of random movies and somehow ravenous was in there and i remember first watching ravenous when i was like 15 or 16 and it was like back when i was still living with my parents it was like on hbo or something and uh mm-hmm. it just stuck with me for some reason i think uh, it was like my first time really watching um like uh, a very gory bloody movie all the way through like, mm-hmm. that i used to not be in a war and that was like one of the first ones mm-hmm. that i watched i guess i don't know i feel like it's kind of panned by critics and i think it's making a cult comeback now that people are yeah getting more into it but uh because you know it's pretty low budget and uh there's a lot of gore and stuff but there's a lot of implied horror with that with the mm-hmm. you know the cannibalism aspect of it and all that and uh but yeah now that you mentioned it they are very very similar in themes and whatnot yeah, it's funny you mentioned mm-hmm. that i was definitely more of the jack london thing when i was writing black tongue but Ravenous could definitely be like a kissing cousin to that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something about Ravenous that actually almost feels like like if Jack London ever wrote a horror story, right? yeah. <laughs> it would have looked like that movie. One thing I loved about Ravenous is you know, we've we've seen like Wendigo stories before. And usually they're kind of you know, if you've actually done any like reading on the Wendigo mythology, it's not like with the movies particular like mm-hmm. it's not a monster, mm-hmm. you know, with antlers that comes like it's a spirit that possesses you i actually did an entire episode of my other podcast the weirdest thing where i talk about wendigo psychosis Mm. which was a real thing and you know it's all very much i think an outgrowth of these cultures that were you know it's not it's not an accident that wendigo stories are from these snowy harsh climates because these are areas where cannibalism is something that could actually happen like if you're if you run out of food and like i thought the way ravenous handled that mythology it was much more, it felt like honest to the actual mythology. You know, and obviously it incorporates elements of the Donner Party and incorporates elements of the Alfred Packer story, which was from Colorado. Yeah, the Colorado Cannibal, I think he was called. The Colorado If, if you've ever seen the movie Cannibal, the musical, <laughs> no. that's based on the Alfred Packer story, but it, it's the guys from South Park. It was their first movie. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fun. It's very, it's, I mean, it's what you expect as a guy from right. South Park doing a cannibal movie a cannibal musical but the fact that 
you know, it was like with a movie like Ravenous, and I felt like I could even maybe interpret this from Black Tongue, although maybe it's a little bit more of a reach, is that like you're never quite sure what is supernatural and what is maybe someone who's kind of, they're isolated, they're starving, they're freezing, are they kind of losing it, Mm. you know? Yeah, the first I watched Ravenous, you know, I didn't, I was younger, so I didn't really understand some of the more the thematical concepts. But yeah, I thought I was just this dude who went crazy eating people. And then I went back and rewatched it when I moved back into my house. It was like one of those things I just, I always watch Ravenous when there was like nothing else to watch. And I was like, I remember this movie. Let's give it a spin. And I started picking up on the fact mm-hmm. that it's like a, you know, a Wendigo story. It was like one of the first mm-hmm. Hollywood, as far as I know, one of the first uh, interpretations of that and uh, kind of blew me mm-hmm. away. I was like, oh, this is, this is what they're getting at, you know? And yeah. right. You know, there's, you know, not trying to spoil it or anything, but you know, there's no like monster in that movie. It's all kind of implied. There's a... Mm-hmm. A guy who I guess might have, he comes back several times after you think he's dead, but that could be, you know, did he actually die or mm-hmm. did he die and was just brought back because he is a Wendigo and he has a spirit in him or did they just think they killed him and he just came back, you know, kind of mm-hmm. a lot of employment right. or there. And yeah, one of the first like Western horror, honestly, things you'd see from that, aside from that, like Bone Tomahawk, there's not mm-hmm. Western horror movies out there. And um, yeah, yeah, one of my favorite Western horror movies. I mean, and I consider it a horror movie. I don't know if like it's necessarily classified this way, but it's oh, I'm forgetting it. It's a Clint Eastwood movie, uh, High Plains Drifter. I've never seen that. It's a dark. It's from the 70s. It's a dark movie. (laughs) Um, I don't want to say too much about it because if you ever get a chance to watch it, but it's got elements of like kind of deal with the devil kind of stuff to it, and Clint Eastwood playing a pretty unheroic version of the sort of typical Clint Eastwood character. So. I'll have to check that out. Um, right up my alley. Yeah, Western horror, when it's done right, like, and I think, you know, being from New Mexico, I have an affinity for it because, you know, this is obviously the land of Billy the Kid. Yeah. You know? And one thing, when you're in, and I would, I've got to imagine being in Missouri and in the Ozarks, it's got to almost be similar. You're sort of confronted with the fact that that kind of history is not actually that long ago. Yeah. I, mean, I think about my grandfather, who's from Oklahoma, who's born in like 1908. That's only, I think, like 30 years after Billy the Kid. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not ancient history. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it feels present in a way that it may not in some other places you know yeah and like uh i'm sure i've never been in new mexico but at least like in missouri there's little pockets of towns that kind of are like stuck in a certain time people mm-hmm. feel like you're going back in time you know and i'm sure new mexico with how isolated it is there's there's communities like that where uh oh yeah and uh yeah and you really get a sense of like you know sometimes things never changed you know the world changed Mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah definitely i mean we do have some communities in northern new mexico that are you know there are families here that go back to you know the 1500s mm-hmm. you know spanish families that go back to long before the united states was even a country right okay well i don't want to keep you too much longer but i do want to talk about autonomous um so this is i mean would you call it a novel or a novella i guess it's a novella yeah i would uh it's definitely a novella it's like 14,000 words. So it's right on the cusp between being a novella and a novelette, I guess. Okay. Let's talk about that. Like, I guess, give us the quick setup for that real quick. And then, and again, we can like stay away from spoilers because that's one I definitely want people to read. It's one of my favorite books I've read this year. Oh, right on. Yeah. Well, I should preface that it's technically a sequel to a story I have in Black Tongue called Red Death. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to have read Red Death to have like gotten into the story, but it's like, I don't know. There's Easter eggs and it features like the same force, I guess, the same entity. Right. Basically, this captain receives a distress signal, like a distress beacon 
mm-hmm. and uh, skate pod. And this is like distant future, you know, space fair. Right. Common. And she ends up taking it aboard and um, kind of like uh, with the Wayland, uh, what's the the company and the, all, all the alien movies that's like corrupt? Uh, the Wayland Utani Corporation. Yeah. There's, it's never blatantly stated, but there's a corporation like that that develops a mm-hmm. AI to help captains. Uh, like now that space faring is a bit more common because captains mm-hmm. have a lot of responsibilities. And so they roll out this brand new untested AI to help the sh- ship captains. And uh, I can't remember the actual acronym for it, but they call them ERIC. It's like autonomous mm-hmm. robotic interface computer or something. Um, but they call- Yeah, I think that. And uh, they try and make him like very human, but in the process, they kind of blur that uncanny valley. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of uh, hints throughout the story that like the crew kind of don't really know how to feel about him because he's just there <laughs> comes through the, yeah. the speakers he's just always like messing with stuff you know if you're just like at a sink he turns the sink on for you so it's like a two-part story i guess or i guess i should say it's a two-sided story where you have this unknown entity coming into the ship that comes hijacked in from the the space pod and then you have mm-hmm. the captain dealing with this ai who um because he's untested mm-hmm. he is starting to break out of the boundaries of like his programming and uh because supposed mm-hmm. to be helpful he's supposed to be a helper he's not supposed to like have any actual novel feelings about anything and i guess uh as the the entity of the story becomes more of a problem so does eric because eric is tasked with like studying this thing that comes on the ship and so it kind of mm-hmm. like snowballs into he becomes fascinated and obsessed with this specimen mm-hmm. also becomes mildly more psychotic as it goes on and so you have the mm-hmm. pronged problem that our captain right deal with i thought what you did with it because this is something that i think we've you know we've seen our fair share of sci-fi horror movies with a rogue ai the things that really set autonomous apart for me were the the thing that comes in on the escape pod was actually like and, and it's true in the short story too it's true in red death as well it's genuinely really frightening because it's it's uh you know just that like sort of mindless unstoppable force yeah you know that you can't understand that is just gonna affect everything and then when you get into our is it eric or eric however you pronounce uh i but, i don't know I, I always call it eric but i guess you could call it Eric or yeah you want to mm-hmm. call it that the way you get into the ai's consciousness and like so much of the story is actually told kind of from eric's perspective mm-hmm. and we understand you know the thing that i love hal 9000 and i love bishop from alien mm-hmm. and you know all those things but like actually getting us inside the quote-unquote head of the ai where you actually kind of we can understand the thought process and you have these like really fascinating ideas about at one point and again i'm trying not to spoil too much but they try to disable it mm-hmm. and the way this ai is able to kind of sequester a piece of itself a piece of its consciousness away and like hide it away mm-hmm. until just the right time for it to come back watching the the kind of the weird logic of this thing and it is it's it's really genuinely psychotic i thought it was just a really effective like you took a very familiar trope and you made it feel very new that was my goal yeah you know i realized writing i'm like well i have rogue ai as you said very well trodden territory and you had this Mm -hmm. thing which not to spoil it read neither story but it's very similar to a very similar alien from a certain movie but uh mm-hmm. i really want to take a different approach and as you said i really wanted people to almost empathize with eric as he's going through this you know mm-hmm. and give like yeah you know this concept of mental illness you know you don't demonize people with mental illness people with schizophrenia that it's an illness right and so you have this 
entity who has the collective knowledge of all of mankind and he's kind of falling mm-hmm. apart and so like he does some really terrible things but i want people to like mm-hmm. also feel for him well and he you know he's able to rationalize them in some way and and the way that eric actually feels kind of betrayed by some of the decisions that the crew people are making mm-hmm. you know it was just it was a really interesting way into that I also want to ask you, so one big controversy in, I think, the writing world in general, and I'm definitely seeing it in the horror world, is the idea of using AI artwork. Mm-hmm. And now you, the book cover is not AI, right? No, that was Chad Lutzka did the uh, cover. That was right. I will preface that, uh, so like full disclosure, there are illustrations in Autonomous that I use mm-hmm. mid-journey. It was before I realized that mid-journey, like the process is basically plagiarizing, you know, they input a bunch of pre-existing artwork and that's how you get all these crazy images i didn't know mm-hmm. so just, yeah i didn't know that either yeah, this yeah. was like right when mid-journey first came out and my whole thought process it was a tongue-in-cheek thing was um you know it's about a rogue ai who goes crazy so right the fact that the artwork the illustrations is made by like an ai it was almost like a meta parody thing you know well that's what i was gonna ask because i thought it was brilliant like I'm I'm with everyone in most instances, you know, and I'm certainly of the belief like you should not use AI to for like your book cover right, right. and stuff. And and I didn't realize, you know, I think the extent to which these programs are kind of taking from other artists' work. Mm-hmm. But as a commentary on AI to use the AI artwork, it felt like if you're ever going to do it, right. this is the context in which to do it. Right. Because I felt like, you know, there's something with you know, even with this, you know, where everyone's talking about AI right now, but even just like a year or two ago, I don't think this was like a conversation people were having. And if you thought about like AI in movies, you know, Skynet, mm-hmm. Hell 9000, you know, it just felt so like distant future or like this isn't like, is this real? Like, this isn't real, right. you know, it feels kind of removed from us. But to do the story of a rogue AI and then have the artwork basically telling us like, this is happening yeah. <laughs> like right now, like this is what we're working towards. It actually added a extra level of caution to the story that, that I'm not sure. Like, I think if you hadn't made that choice to use the mid journey, there's not, and we should say there's not that many, yeah. it's just, there's a few, but if you hadn't made that choice, I think we could still file Eric into like, it's safely fiction kind of category, right. but just kind of like making a nod that like, no, this is actually happening right now. This is something that is, is not the distant future. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you see it that way because ever since this controversy kind of took off, I've been so paranoid that people are going to like read Autonomous and, you know, see that I used AI and be like, you know, that I'm part of that group that's, you know, just blatantly using AI for whatever. It was really a commentary thing. I thought that was, yeah. the, I don't know, the stars coming together when I was writing a rogue AI story. And then you just had this, it was the first engine, I think, the first like publicly mm-hmm. usable AI engine to do graphic stuff. I, mm-hmm. That was my, really my point. It was like meta commentary, you know, like right. this, is, this is happening. We have engines advanced enough to replicate artwork and yeah so it wasn't me trying to uh you know pass off you know i even put in the in the credits you know like mid-journey this isn't well and i th- i think the fact that you're like very honest about that and it, it is like uh it's a yin and yang commentary you know the imagery and the story and the way they kind of work together 
I would be surprised. I mean, there's always going to be someone who's going to be mad at something. Right. But I think most people, if they read Autonomous, they're going to have the reaction I did. That you weren't arbitrary. Like, it wasn't an arbitrary choice to use it. And I actually think it was kind of using the medium of mid-journey kind of against itself in a really interesting way. So like I said, if, if ever there's an appropriate use of something like that, that was the one. Like, that was... Like I, like I said, I thought it was a brilliant choice. And I, I really do hope that people, like, is it, the, did you put that out yourself? Is that one? That was like the only thing self-published. Yeah. That one was self-published? Because mm-hmm. I'm in the, I'm in the process of trying to put something together and I'm trying to decide, do I try to go with a publisher or do I put it out myself? What was your, what has your experience been with that? Has it been successful? Like, are you happy with how the release of that has gone? Uh, Yeah, surprisingly, because, you know, I know there's a stigma around self-publishing. Uh, there always has been. It seems to have been a much more accepted um, recently as like a viable avenue mm-hmm. but like first of all the link was really you know you don't get too many novella like submission calls they're there but it's not very often and there's only a few companies that are really like looking yeah for that there's that and i, I just want to try it you know like i thought it'd be a fun project and i honestly thought it was gonna be a flop you know it's just like a fun little thing like five people read mm-hmm. it and you know like okay i did that and marked it off the list it is a lot of work compared to like going through a publisher where they literally handle everything for you. Right. So that was a bit tedious. Like uh, I worked with Chad Lutzka, the artist, amazing mm-hmm. and artist. He did the uh, cover art for it and like trying to go through, I did it through Amazon KDP and even mm-hmm. other stuff's pretty streamlined. Like I had to go back, make sure the formatting's just right. And like mm-hmm. making sure the word into the Kindle, uh, the, like formatting process for, from word into Kindle, you know, you hit a tab there and it like, totally moves a paragraph over that kind of tedious stuff that was a little annoying but the overall like resulting process was pretty rewarding because uh you know i put out the call like hey do people want to review this and i honestly was expecting crickets you know but i guess i've been writing like long enough that i have like you know a small following of people right did, like we have this little community and I was surprised by the amount of people like yes please i'd love you know an advanced reader copy and that was very validating that you know Mm-hmm. fellow writers and authors that i i love their stuff and vice versa you know they came together and you know helped me create a release for that and so i thought it was a su- success in my own right you know it's it went way better than i thought it would have ever for being like my first self-published venture so well and i think you know you mentioned the stigma behind self-publishing and i do think that like that is like largely going away Mm -hmm. it seems to be it seems like people are much more accepting of it and you know some of it is now with like ebooks and stuff you know people i think are realizing and this is a thing that's happened a little bit in the movie industry too with streaming is it's like starting to realize oh like i don't need to deal with the gatekeepers like i can own this myself i can like i don't need anyone giving me permission to put something out there Mm -hmm. and you have a way to get it into people's hands and enough authors are doing that you know i just also just talked to bridget nelson Mm -hmm. And she has her collection, the Bouquet of Viscera, that she self-published. And she put a lot of time and work into it. Same thing, you know, getting the right cover art, all of that. And it, she's had a lot of success with it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm hemming and I'm in the hemming and hawing stages with this specific thing. Right. You know, I think I will probably do some self-publishing in the future. I'm just deciding is is this the thing I want to put that level of work into, <laughs> right. or do I want to wait till I have a novel or a novella or something? So, That's the main. Uh, is, yeah, deciding. You know, are you really going to want to spend months, potentially a year, trying to get all this stuff figured out for one project? 
you know, and right. versus like submitting it to uh, publishers and, you know, potentially waiting months to hear a response, but then mm-hmm. do the whole thing. So, you know, there's, there's pros and cons for both. But it sounds like you were able to kind of get the word out and that we're able to get interest in it and find readers for it. I sure feel like I saw a lot of people posting about it when you released it. Mm. So I know that there definitely were people reading it. Yeah. You know, my, before that, my collection came out through DNT publishing and I got a lot of like mm-hmm. readers through DNT. They did a really good job um, with yeah. it and stuff. And I think that was really a huge, like if I had put out autonomous first, I probably wouldn't have mm-hmm. nearly as much like response to it. I was still uh, relatively unknown, which I mean, I mean, I still am, you know, we're, we're all indie writers here and uh, right. <laughs> but just the fact that I had put out like a traditionally published release first, that had like some pretty positive reviews, I think really helped when I decided to self-publish something, you know, and I already had like, I was part of the community now, you know, I was, right. I had something already out there that people seem to like. So I think that helped. Yeah. And that's kind of like part of what I'm thinking about too. Cause I think pe- some people are starting to know who I am, but the same thing, like you said, we're all indie and you know, I'm so far still just a name and a bunch of anthologies. Mm-hmm. I don't not have the thing out there that's got my name on the cover. Right. So do I want that? Do I want to start with self-publishing with that? Or do I want to, like you said, you know, go through a publisher that can kind of help kind of do that first round of work for me so that when i have a novel or a novella i've already kind of have laid that foundation right and i'm like i'm you know i'm going back and forth because like bridget she put out her collection on her own it was her first thing uh it was her first book and she's had a lot of success with it so you know i think it's just a lot of it's just a crapshoot <laughs> oh yeah i know like a lot of people their first ever thing was self-published and now they're like getting movie deals and all this other stuff and like Mm-hmm. my favorite authors uh matthew bartlett i don't know if you know who he is oh yeah but yeah. both he's always been self-published like i think he got a few collections through cemetery dance but like his main thing has been self-publishing you know and mm-hmm. it really is as you said a crapshoot and also being not afraid to talk about yourself you really gotta do a lot of self-promotion and uh yeah there's just so many pieces uh, that go into it you know and it really is kind of like mm-hmm. a gamble as to whether it's going to take off or not well, the good thing about uh, the years I spent in the movie industry is it made me not shy about promoting myself. Right. You really have to. I mean, in the movie industry, like so much of it is just about pitching yourself. And it kind of got me past that stage of things. So hopefully I can kind of carry that forward into whatever I'm putting out next. Well, I think uh, we've been talking here now almost two hours, so I, I should probably let you go. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. This is a lot of fun. And uh, like I said, Negative Space 2, I think it's coming out like it's either has just come out or it's like within a day or two of this episode. Mm-hmm. So I will be posting the uh, link. And what else? Just real quick before I let you go, what are you working on next? Uh, well, I have a, a, st- a couple anthologies coming out. Uh, uh, DNT is putting out a charity anthology called Dark Town, and that all the mm. proceeds to that are going towards the I can't I don't know how to say it the Ovalda shooting victims. Oh, that, okay. That's coming out well by the time this episode comes out, it would it would have already been out. I'm in the process of shopping around a novel. I have no idea if that's going to get published anytime soon or if it's just going to fall. Mm-hmm. Though, but that's out there. I have a Western story coming out in um, Ghost Timber Press. They're uh, along. Oh, is it the what is I I think. Uh... It's like Hallowed Trails or yeah, something? Yeah, Long Hallowed Trails, I think. Yeah, yeah, Long Hallowed Trails, right? Yep. I have a story coming out through them. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head when that's coming out. I know it's either late June, early July when that's coming out. I'm going to say, I think that's coming out soon because I've seen that's come up on my suggested things on mm-hmm. Amazon. So. Yeah, that one I'm pretty excited about. A lot of great authors in that one. Cool. That's all I can think of at the moment. Uh, 
<laughs> well, good luck with the novel, and definitely, uh, I'd love to have you back on at some point in the future. So, absolutely, blast. Well, that was Richard Beauchamp, and I am Scotty Milder, and this has been another episode of Horror from the High Desert. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, just a quick reminder that Negative Space, a return to survival horror, is out now. You can go on the Dark Peninsula Press website or onto Amazon and get yourself a copy. And then I also wanted to just ask everybody, and I know the listenership is definitely growing, um, if you could do me a favor in whatever streaming platform that you're using, go ahead and go on there leave a star rating obviously five stars help out the most leave a review tell your friends spread the word and yeah we're gonna be back here in a couple weeks with some really cool new guests so thank you very much for listening bye